Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, to the Calling a Man's Answers show, episode number 104. Today we got Kenan Hutchinson back on the podcast. We only talk about COVID for a small amount of time because he's changing professions. So am I. At the beginning, you talk about grad school and how hard it is to get into grad school. However, I have gotten into law school since then. So don't feel bad for me. If you guys want to skip that, go right ahead. I hope you guys enjoy episode 104 with my good friend, Kenan Hutchinson. After, Um, But one of the prefaces, we're talking about grad school applications, but um, one of the, so like, because of COVID, this is like the first time, I don't know if it's the first time, but this is like, right now, there's a lot of fifth years who are in undergrad, and then me, who's an actual senior, all applying for grad school. So it's like, there's twice as many applicants as there usually is because of COVID, because of how that screwed everything up, that it's like pushing everybody back a year. So it's like, I'm already, I'm basically getting screwed over twice because not I'm like, not only am I actually a senior in college who just graduated, but there's an entire class above me, but also um, I took my LSAT late. So I'm just like sitting here waiting, just, you know, sitting on my ass trying to figure out like how I can make some money before I have like, you know, I'm in this weird mumbo, you know? Yeah. 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 That, yeah, that's the that's the downside of applying to grad schools, I guess, is that yeah, once you get the applications and you've done all you can do, it's just kind of like that waiting game. Yeah. Well, welcome back, dude. Uh it's the Colin Man's Answer Show. It's been, I think it's been a year, maybe over I, a year. I, yeah, I think we're we're right around there. Like maybe last summer we did something. I think it was last spring. Maybe, maybe last summer. Um, but yeah, dude, that's I mean, so since then, actually, both of us have gotten vaccinated and both of us have had COVID, right? Yes, true. I think I've had COVID more than once since we talked last. I got it when I texted you and I was asking you because I actually got out of, so I might get it now because like, I'm still waiting to see when my immunity goes away and then I'll get the booster probably. But I had COVID and the school was trying to require boosters. But however, you told me that there's really no point in getting the booster if you just had COVID because the immunity is basically the same, right? So they didn't really like force me to do it. So I just kind of like waved it off because I knew I was going to have immunity for a while. And now my parents, both of them just had COVID and I don't live with them. But I'm like always over there and I didn't get it. And if or like, I mean, I was being safe and I was being cautious, but I never tested positive and I also never had any symptoms. So that made me think I was like, well, maybe I wasn't in close contact or maybe this one spreads with closer contact than just, you know, back and forth uh, or like, you know, like close consumers like they sleep in the same bed, obviously. But I was like, maybe I still have some immunity. So I'm kind of waiting to see how that all turns out before I get boosted. But I will. I will. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. I just got my booster last month. Uh, So I had COVID. My family shared it with me over the holidays, over Christmas, which is, which was real nice. It wasn't terrible. Um, At least having it. So I think my vaccine did what it was supposed to do. Uh, But then yeah, over. So that was, that was Christmas. Uh, and then you wait like 90 days, at least 90 days. So three months, uh, afterwards before you want to go get the booster anyway. And so, uh, yeah, with the, the new strain that was running around, I'd honestly kind of forgotten about it. Um, and then with the new strain that was running around, yeah, my work uh, at the hospital was like, Hey, we noticed you 
don't have the booster. I was like, oh yeah, I guess I'll just go grab that. So, so like, are you, are you still a PhD candidate or do you have your PhD? What have you done since we talked last? I am actually, hold on a second. I'm going to plug in my computer really quick. Cause I just realized I didn't do that. Yeah. Take your time. Give me a sec. Yeah. So let's see, since last time we talked, I am still a PhD candidate, um, but I'm actually leaving. So there's been a lot of changes, I guess, over the last year. Uh, I realized that while I enjoy studying viruses and microbiology and everything, my real passion is about science communication and education. And so like one of the reasons that you and I linked up is that you know, I thought that like as a scientist, it's our job to take the information that we have and to objectively share it with the public so that you guys can know and be informed and not have all this biasness. So uh, I kicked off a company this year and I decided to switch PhDs into a uh, informational PhD. So I am, I'm leaving with my master's in biomedical research in August, um, almost next month. Yeah. Wow. Uh, so yeah, in August I'll leave and I'll have a master's in biomedical research. And then I'm starting a new PhD, uh, still at Northwestern up on the Edmondson campus in what's called learning sciences. So it's like a interdisciplinary PhD between cognitive psychology, so like how we learn and then educational design. And so like designing better platforms for us to absorb information. Definitely. I think a lot of, you know, it's the ignorance of you know, the American public is like, you, you can clearly see it. And it's more available nowadays with how everybody has a voice through social media. Usually when you had someone who had a major platform or could say something and you're just like, that's just really wrong. It had to be like a celebrity or an actor or something, you know, somebody who like had a lot of influence, but really just doesn't know what's going on. But nowadays people can just say things and expect it to be true. And even so people can say things that they know to be wrong, but they're trying to, um, misguide the public and they're preying on the fact that people are ignorant. And I think that is one of the most dangerous things about modern culture. However, with people like you, it's important because you guys have actually had a lot of research done in your specific area. And so when you are getting like a PhD now in this information or side communication, you'll be able to inform the public with things like vaccines and viruses in a way in which you have some actual expertise behind it, instead of just you looking up or reading three articles and thinking that you're a God, like most people do. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess that's the whole point of, of good science communication is, you know, my, my expertise, my background is in microbiology. So when it comes to health vaccines, viruses, uh, even like microbial diseases, uh, bacterial diseases and stuff like that, that's where I am most intensively trained, but the other perks of actually having a PhD, um, and not that you need a PhD to do this. It's just, that's what you are trained to do, right? Like you can be a great football player and not be never have gone or a great basketball player, but maybe you never played classic basketball, right? You just played at the YMCA all the time and you're still good. Um, I would, I would kind of compare it to that is that our training as a PhD is not necessarily it, it makes you an expert in a very specific thing, but the skill set that's transferable is how to actually like read a paper that's maybe not in your field and to be able to understand that and break it down and be like, this is what good science is, this is what bad science is. A PhD is really just a degree that says that you're an expert at research. Uh, and research doesn't just mean like pipetting things, but also like deciphering and distilling mm -hmm. information. 
Well, yeah, one of my favorite classes that I took within the last year, I think it was fall. I think it was in the fall of my senior year. It might have been the spring of my junior year. It doesn't matter. Um, was the philosophy of science. And one of the things you learn is that, like, for – you know, philosophy courses, I don't know if you've taken any, but they're just like, you're just trying to like, I don't even know what you're trying to do, but you like, you just figure out that like everything is more co- complex and confusing. And that's kind of the point, I guess. If I could have <laughs> one small, like I have a degree in it and I don't even know like how to explain it. It's like, if you were taking a class, it's just going to twist your, what you think is true into a way where you have to question everything about it, which is a cool skill to have. It, it teaches you how to critically think about everything. However, yeah. I will say it can make you nihilistic about literally everything. But in, for something like science, you're like, what even is science? And that's like the question we asked on the first day. And one of the answers we like, you know, came towards was from Karl Popper and talks about how, you know, scientists try to falsify it instead of, you know, diving into research and trying to prove they're, what they're saying is true. Like most other researchers do, scientists actually go in it and they try to falsify what they're looking at. Um, and, and on that level, people like you who are studying the i'm, I'm going to talk about like natural sciences right now because mm-hmm. you know we can talk about cognitive sciences and computer sciences but I think they're a little different um but with the you know natural sciences i think a lot of what over time has happened is you, you get a lot of people who you know you're what you're supposed to do is you're supposed to have a hypothesis and then you test it to try to see if it's false and then if it turns out to be true close to the truth because you know true is like very you know specific but if you're close to the truth you're like oh hey cool and then maybe in the future it becomes um, falsified but a lot of modern people you know they they i feel like a lot of people tend to use what they know or their expertise and they tend to twist it for their own um maybe personal gain so like the science communicators on a lot of um like twitter and stuff who like just who cater to one specific political party because that's who backs them. And they, they, they twist the facts. Maybe they're not lying per se, but they're not necessarily being honest with what they're saying. And so, like I said, with people like you who are like, have been trained in, you know, viruses and the herpes, herpes simplex virus. That's what you're studying, right? Yeah. Yeah. For this PhD. Yeah. When, when that comes up, you can sit there and, and actually explain things to me and other people in a way in which you actually understand the, the nicks and crannies of it, unlike, you know, anybody else who's just read, read specific articles, like I was saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You hit on a couple of big things there, right? Like the first is that in, in natural sciences and research versus communication, right? It's about iteration. And so you're like saying, yeah, true, proving to falsify, we call that burden of proof, right? So in an argument, one of the easy ways to get out of an argument is to put the burden of proof on you. I can say something outlandish and you have to prove it wrong, which is just like what at first it's a big hurdle for you to overcome. Cause I can say something crazy, like dragons are real. And I'll be like, all right, that's a true statement. And then you have to a, accept that challenge be like, all right, I'm going to put in all the work to prove that dragons aren't real. And then like, now I need to go find all the evidence. And so most people don't even want to do that. And they're just like, whatever, you're crazy. And they walk away or you put in all of this work, but like that, that burden of proof by me putting it on you, that's the lazy way out. Science is the other way around. So if I make a claim, the burden of proof is on me that I have to prove what I am saying. I can't just say something without evidence. Um, so yeah, that's, that's the nice thing about research and science 
as a, as a tool, right? So science itself is, it's just a process. And the process has very strict rules for how you do things, which means that I have to prove it. And then I have a hypothesis and I set out to prove my hypothesis wrong, exactly like you said. And if I don't prove my hypothesis wrong, then I go, oh, well, it's not wrong this way. It could be wrong other ways, but we're going to do a bunch of other experiments, which is called an iterative process. We're doing over and over again. And like, we'll start chipping away at the things that aren't true and whatever's left, we're going to say that's, that's as close to fact as we can know uh, in science. But then when you get into philosophy as you do, and that's the communication aspect of things, right? Then those rules, the science is no, science is just a process. And so once we start communicating about it, the process of science is no longer there. And now we're talking about data points. I, I want to call them facts, but like true facts only exist in math, right? One plus one is always two. Um, but in, especially in biology, there, you'll always be able to find some sort of, of caveat or outlier or something. That's just part of the beauty of life. But for now, we'll just call them facts as well. But when you get into communication, then it's all about taking these facts found through the scientific process, but now I can put a spin on it and I can change where the burden of proof is. And so, yeah, the, the real trick I think becomes not just being an expert on the topic, right? That makes it a lot easier to talk about what you're talking about, but you can still spin things as an expert. Um, the real thing I think is, is discipline of science communicators and of communicators in general, right? Whether it's on the news or whatnot, is to hold true to being objective and just stating the facts for what they are and not trying to put that spin on it. That's where the whole philosophy aspect comes in. Is like, how do we add meaning to this fact? And sometimes facts don't need meaning. Sometimes facts are just facts and take them as you will to be a smarter and more informed person. No, definitely. And I think you bringing up the burden of proof is important. Um, when you think about something like law, right, it, it's crazy. I don't think a lot of people understand like or un really comprehend what the burden of proof is. And it's like I think a lot of people think when you get accused of something, you get, you know, like let's let's talk about Deshaun Watson right now. He's got 29 cases against him of sexual assault. And that's a, it's a strong indicator that the, he has done some misdoing. Right. However, the burden of proof is on the I guess it wouldn't be considered a prosecutor. It'd be considered the plaintiff's attorney in this case, it's a civil suit. So the burden of proof is on the plaintiff's attorney. And so right now, when people are like slandering and he should be cut from the NFL, not necessarily. He has not been convicted of anything. He has not even settled on anything. I think actually he might have settled. I don't want to say that he didn't. <laughs> Someone in the comments, don't eat me alive if he did settle. He might have signed an NDA, but, um, but like, I don't think they understand. Like I feel like a lot of people when they, when you get a, arrested for something, they don't really understand that the way the system is set up is that so that the burden of proof is on the prosecutor or who is making the claim and that you're innocent until proven guilty. And th I mean, they have to harp on that when you're on a jury or, or when you're even like, yeah, when you're on a jury, but I don't like like what you said, like, I think a lot of people just put the burden of proof on the other person. Like, well, I make a claim. So you have to just, you can't say it's wrong. And, and, and it's like, and in effect, what a lot of politicians do, it's like, they just create a straw man. And then it's just like, you're arguing against something that doesn't even really exist. It'd be like, if, if you told me that the COVID vaccines have a danger in, you know, whatever, what we were talking about last time. Right. And then I went and I said, so you're saying the COVID vaccines are dangerous. That's just like, it's not what you said. I'm twisting what you're saying and I'm making a straw man argument out of it. And I think a lot of people do that nowadays instead of actually like 
instead of actually like diving in and critically thinking about it. But now that I'm thinking about what I'm saying, it's probably a a lack of, you know, proper education on, you know, how to think and how to like attack arguments rather than it is, you know, people actually trying to be assholes. Right. Well, yeah, I think you, you get a little bit of both, right? Like I, I would definitely feel from my opinion is that politicians, right? That's, that's their bread and butter, right? Their bread and butter is that they want to sway you. They are professional debaters, discussers, whatever you want to call them. So maybe they are not classically trained in philosophy and know what slippery slope and straw man and, you know, like all these other like argument fallacies are, but they are good in debate and discussion and being able to use them. So just because you don't know a term, maybe if that's what you're saying is like, oh, maybe they're not educated. I think that they are intentionally doing this because they intentionally want you to side with them. Um, And then I wouldn't put the blame on the public. I mean, one of the things I'm passionate about and like what my company's trying to do is to educate people more. But again, it comes to that burden of proof is that the blame isn't on the public because why should I, as somebody who's like listening to somebody who's supposed to be an expert, have to go out and do all of this extra work to make sure that the expert, so-called expert that I'm supposed to be able to trust is telling me correct information, right? The, the fault always lies on the person who is distorting the information or distorting the truth, right? The, the whole, there's a great book that I just read called Death of Expertise. And like, yeah, um, yeah, the whole, the whole idea is that like, if you have experts who are not doing their job as experts. Uh, and so you have these people who are intentionally misconstruing information, then it makes you not be able to believe any experts because how do I know without all that training, whether or not expert A is telling me the truth or expert B is telling me the truth. And now you're asking me to go and get just as much expertise, all the work that you did just for this one argument, when there could be hundreds of these arguments that I'm like thinking about all the time. Yeah. I read a book this last semester and it was talking about how Aristotle would, he would, when he was like talking about the polis and politics and he called that like the silver tongued orator, Mm. people who are like, like misguiding information for the public in order to construe reality in a specific way. Um, Yeah. It's crazy. You can really see the sociopathic tendencies of a lot of people on through like Twitter and Instagram, if you like really are thinking about like when, when I see somebody who's like really lying about something, you know, like, and, and, you know, like you said, to, to an extent, like that's kind of the politician's jobs. They're trying to cater to one person to get them attacking the other so that they can win. And it's just more, and like, I won't even say that I blame, like, I do blame Fox News and CNN a little bit because they are supposed to be news sources, like actually news, but then they all like they're catering to people, you know, they are catering on that fear they're catering and they're and they're not their job is to entertain kind of. And so, like, I don't blame them. I just blame them for the people they're talking to are actually believing what they're saying. Yeah, I I think a clear thing to like just delineate between those 24 hour news sources, though, is that it's not always news that's on there. Right. There are television shows like Sean Hannity is not a news source. He is a a personality. And what gets really tricky is that like when like Fox News runs and it's like the news news portion of it. And I watch it. I'm like, oh, yeah, these are it's uh, I mean, it's information. It's accurate information, I would say, for the most part. But then you have like good news that's run on there. And then they don't tell you, okay, now we're cutting away from the news. Like if you're watching Channel 5, right, you're watching the news and then you watch. I don't even know what's on TV anymore, 
when I was a kid, it was like the Lopez show or something like that. Yeah. My stuff, right. Now it's just like, oh, you're watching the news. And then it's like somebody else who looks like a news correspondent, but is very biased. And this is not actual news. This is opinion, but it's on a news channel. So you just start getting all this opinion and being like, oh, it's on a news channel. This must be news. And CNN does the same too, right? No, yeah. And I always wonder with those personalities, like how much of it is just their like job, you know, because like when I hear something, and let's say it's Ben Shapiro, there's some things that I agree with Ben Shapiro. I'm like, yeah, sure. But then I'm I'm like, how can you agree with both of these things at the same time? And the same thing happens with like uh the young Turks. It's like they say something and I'm like, yeah, or Bernie Sanders. I'm like, not really Bernie Sanders, because that's actually like his job. Like someone who's like a personality, like can't even think Don Lemon. And I'm like, yeah, that actually, I do agree with that. And then they say another thing. I'm like, that just contradicts everything you just said. And so it makes me think, I think most people are probably swaying like me. You know, you like think, agree some things over here. You agree a little bit over here. And you mostly you just kind of right here. Just like, well, I don't really know. And then, but then I'm like, so I'm listening and, you know, I studied politics for four years and I, we don't study like political debate. You do, if you take a specific class, but we study like political systems, how government functions, what they're supposed to function as, constitutional law, things like that. However, when I'm like listening to these guys, I'm like, how much of this do you actually agree with? And how much of this are you just catering to the people who do agree with this? You know? Um, And it's just like, you know, we got people make livings off of being these people. And are you going to stop being a like a public douchebag if you're making millions of dollars doing it. Like I, I can't answer that because I don't make millions of dollars doing that. But if I was <laughs> like, I'm probably saying it's probably hard to give up millions of dollars to be a truthful person. If you're making millions of dollars. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, money, power, it's, it's all, what, what's the saying? Absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. Right. And yep. like, as you get more of it, it's hard. It, this is, I'm sure in the in, in the entertainment world, just as strong as in the political world, just as strong as it is in is in just your day to day life, right? Is that people often think that power is like oh, or money is like I have a lot of it, but really what it is is that you have a fear of even if you have a little of losing what you already have. So like there's this inherent drive to just keep doing whatever you have to never go below where you're at. Um, which at a certain point turns into to greed. And, but either way, like it, it opens up a lot of without having that objectivity and that like kind of own personal moral line. And it just opens up a lot of possibilities for doing questionable things. Uh, and, you know, you keep pushing that line a little bit and a little bit. And next thing you know, you ended up here when you started here, but it was just because it was a bunch of baby steps. So one of the things that I started doing since I've been really bored waiting to hear back from law schools, I started a series on my podcast where I just kind of dive in. It started with uh, the Dobbs v. Jackson case that overturned Roe. I kind mm-hmm. of just I gave the philosophical implications. I wasn't like agreeing at all with I was actually disagreeing with the majority opinion, but I was giving the philosophical implications of why he thinks that way. You know, what is his mm-hmm. thought law philosophical background is? And just to like, you know, talk about it. And then I got into my arguments against the majority opinion. And then so after that, I went into like some, some of my fans were asking for me to do it. I went into the background, like common law and, and, and um, natural law. And then this last one I did was actually regarding like just other types of uh, legal theories and like some problems with uh, that are associated with legal theories, especially in like 
um, when it comes to like Nazi legality in the United States, even the United States system. And, and one of the things you see is like you talk about when you, you're fiddling with that morality line is a lot of legal theorists, especially prior to the 21st century or 20th century had started to posit this idea of legal positivism, which it severely or, or subscribes to the idea of the separation thesis, which basically says that law and morality are separate entities entirely and they have nothing to do with each other. There might be some overlap, but most of it runs completely different. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying I agree with that, but that's what the separation thesis is. Um, and so when they're pushing this, you get to something that Hans Kelsen posited in the 19th century, I believe, maybe 20th century, but the idea of pure theory of law, which basically says that we can get to a scientific version of law. Mm. And, and that idea has been able to, has been seen to justify Nazi legality or the idea that basically the Nazi system was, was legally valid. It was their own system in their own society. And under pure theory of law, the society dictates what laws are. But most people are like, that can't be true. What they did was just totally abhorrent, you know? And so the last episode I did, I'm just giving a look at spark notes. The last episode I did, I, di- I dove into like someone who Gustav Radbrunch and Lana L. Fuller's um, arguments against that. And they basically both basically said that there has to be a small amount, a minimal amount of natural law in play at all times within, within legal systems, because without it, it's easy to go so far, far immoral if morality and law aren't connected at all. So at, for Radbrunch, it, it, it is the case that legal systems should be um, legal positivist. So it, law should be stripped away from morality until the point where it's intolerant. And that's called the intolerability thesis. And, and I tend to believe that because I don't necessarily think that we can just strip away and we can just have a legal system which we just follow the law and and the laws are completely removed from morality because at some level i think all people who are designed to be in society are good people and those good people need something higher than themselves to adhere to so that they don't cross lines of the other people you know what i mean yeah, yeah. I like to think that people are mostly like Gaussian curved, right? Like, yeah, you got a rule in that there are just psychopaths and sociopaths that do exist. And even though we don't see there's a small tail end, there's also, I have a hard time with true altruism just as a philosophical concept. Like, I believe that it's a thing, but like when you like break down it, it's a fun, it's a fun argument to get into. But I'm sure there are people who are excessively altruistic as well but most people yeah kind of fall into this like majority of the curve gray area of of decent people trying to strive to be good and it's a lot easier to define what is good by having laws and i would agree yeah based off of an inherent level of we'll call it natural morality right this is kind of what what most religions do most religions lay out a basis of what I would say, all these overlapping things are natural morality, right? Like, don't steal, don't kill your neighbor, don't steal your neighbor's wife. Uh, Like, all the things that like, in a normal society, it's like, yeah, I would, they all fall underneath mostly the tenets, treat others how you'd want to be treated, right? It's like, this is how I'd want to be treated so that I am, 
I feel safe and secure in my society. And so like, let's make these the basis of, of rules. So we've, I don't know if you've like been studying it at all, but what we're seeing for the COVID numbers, sorry for the digression. Do you think that it's becoming more, you know, I don't know how, what word am I looking for? More woven into our society to where it's going to become more of a flu-like endemic, I think is the word, where it's like just, it's a part of our society. And every time, every couple of months, you know, there's a big COVID season, but it's going to become less, more, more, like it's going to become closer to the flu numbers where people who are really high risk die, but most people are just going to get it, might get sick, really sick, be bedridden for a couple of days and be fine. Is that what we're seeing? Or is it always going to be something that's just kind of weird, you know? Yeah, uh, that's a good question. I think we've, we've passed the point of having any chance of it being gone, gone. Uh, I think that this is where we're at now. This is, it's going to be coronavirus number eight of humans. Um, if it keeps evolving, mutating the way that it is um, and becoming, so like right now, what are we on? Uh, like Omega, is it 1.3 or something like that? Um, I, ir- irrelevant, but it is highly contagious, but not super virulent in which, is, so there's not a lot of mortality, right? So we see people are still getting sick. Some people are still getting hospitalized from it. It's, it's less lethal uh, to people who are getting it though. So it's becoming more cold-like, which uh, I know when we first started talking about this, I was talking about, so there before this COVID or this uh, coronavirus came around, there were seven coronaviruses that have, are known to infect humans. Um, four of them, is that? SARS, MERS, this is SARS-CoV-2. Uh, I'm doing the numbers in my head really, really quick. Either way, four of them cause uh, common colds. They, ca- they account for like up to 30% of the colds that you get, right? And then we had uh, these pandemic or yeah, epidemic slash pandemic outbreaks. The original SARS, uh, the MERS virus in 2012, and this one that's popped out. Um, and so, yeah, I think that this is kind of, we're at a point where it's just part of what we're going to be seeing. It's the thing is that people still get sick with this in the summer, which is strange. Um, My parents just got sick. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's not, it's not necessarily following flu dynamics, um, like classic flu dynamics where we still see pretty, pretty elevated numbers, uh, especially like around gatherings and whatnot. But my thought and hopeful comfortability is that, you know, as more people, are getting it. Hopefully people continue getting their, their boosters and, and are vaccinated against it is that this is just going to adapt to humans more and more and become more of just a cold like thing that we have to live through. And, you know, eventually it becomes even more asymptomatic uh, until eventually it gets to more of a, a flu, like uh, I, I would say more cold, like um, out outbreak where like maybe a few people get it in the summer where they're symptomatic. Uh, and then, you know, in the winter where more people get it, maybe there's a few mutations that happen that like you get a a worse version that pops up every few years, but it's just something that we'll end up living with and, and looking back and kind of kicking ourselves and being like, well, it'd be nice not to have this extra virus that makes us sick, but 
you know, at least it's, it's not as terrifying as it was when it first popped up. I'm going to ask you a hard question. And now. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'll answer it the best I can. Well, it's not hard in that. You'll see. Um, with the information coming out, where do you think this virus came from? Where, like, where did it originate from? Did it originate in the lab or did it originate mm. from the illegal food market? I see. I see. Um, I could, this, I don't know if this is a hard question or not. This is an easy question for me to answer. Uh, just in terms of what I do and what I like, what's important is the answer is I don't know. Uh, and personally, I don't really care. Mm-hmm. Um, it came out, it exists. It's been here for what, two years, going on three years now. It's here. We had to deal with it. I don't think, I don't believe for a second that it was released as a viral bioweapon or agent like that did it leak from a lab i i'm still more inclined to think that this is a a natural phenomenon crossover events and zoonotic diseases which is just like a disease that comes from an animal and then spills into spillover is another word for it spills into another type of animal happens all like all the time multiple times a year um And so there's a whole branch, we talked about this too, of research scientists known as emerging infectious disease scientists who that's their whole job is that like they're surveilling for this. They have protocols on like how to protect us and prevent these things from happening. Um, When I used to work in mosquito viruses, that was a huge thing. Mosquitoes are just grim reapers of the planet. And so we're always looking out for things like that. So I have no problem believing that this is a spillover event that came from some wet market. Um, we know that those are hotbeds for diseases, but if it did accidentally slip out of a lab while somebody was studying that too, um, I guess I wouldn't be surprised by that, but there's, there's no indication, at least from anything that I've seen or what I've heard in my circles that like, and just the thought of how this is, how this virus acts, that this is a bioweapon or mm-hmm. intentionally done. So. You know, we're, we're not regarding COVID and regarding, you know, just going forward, how I don't want to say how dangerous, let's say how prominent or and I guess how prominent and how dangerous is it for something like a bioweapon to be created for the future of humanity, you know, and how like. Is it like something that could happen? Is it something that's probably going to happen someday? And how dangerous would it be if it did get weaponized? Like not COVID, but another virus. Yeah, no, this is, there's whole branches of multiple militaries. Our United States military has a whole microbiology, bioterrorism uh, branch where that is what we do. We, I mean, I don't work for them. Hopefully nobody's coming out. I thought about working for them uh, for a while, actually. I thought that'd be really cool. Um but I have no doubt that we have our own bioterrorism or yeah, bio reagents um, and that it not necessarily to use. Uh, I like to think that we are better than that, although I wouldn't put it past us, but more or less so, so that we have anti uh, vaccines and antivirals and antimicrobials and antibacterials uh, to protect ourselves against it in case somebody else was doing that. So, I mean, if you remember way back when we had like around 9-11, we had the uh, 
the anthrax, right? Mm. People were sending anthrax. That's a bioterrorist weapon. Um, so that is anthrax comes from a bacteria, uh, Bacillus anthracis. Uh, these spores inhale them into your lungs and they're highly lethal. Um, and they're super heat resistant and everything like that. So it's something that comes from nature that if you can like get a bunch of them, bioterrorism weapon. Um, and so, yeah, we need to be, we need to know about them because knowledge is power. And then that helps us be able to prepare against them. So a lot of potential for bioterrorism to be used and do a lot of damage. Um, but also not a lot, it, there are a lot of hurdles to this too. Uh, actually, I was just talking to a friend about like, oh, like what kind of backyard science can you feasibly do? And like to make something like this or to make something like some like, like the game pandemic or yeah, was it a pandemic break the breakout? There used to be like a game out, yeah. yeah, on your phone where you could like make a, some sort of like bio agent and spread it around the world. Like you need to have access to labs and like certain things to do that. And most places that have that access are also smart enough to, to not release something out there. Cause the, the, the biggest danger of any sort of biological reagent is, as I mentioned earlier, biology is not like one plus one equals two. Life finds a way and you always run the risk of like whatever you let out mutates and gets around your, your vaccine or gets around your antiviral and becomes something that you can't control because nature just does nature things and it's hard to predict. Yeah, I think a lot of people before COVID and, and to some extent now they're kind of when life's getting back to normal, they're kind of forgetting it too. We tend to forget that we are a small part of an, a huge ecosystem. Like we, yeah, we might, I don't want to say we're the smartest, but we're the people who can create the most, you know, we, we are the things that can create and manifest the most. And we definitely have the biggest impact negatively and beneficially on the planet. You know, we have the biggest, you know, people move and spread their genomes faster than any other animal, but they also, you know, create, hazardous material constantly that hurts the earth however we forget that it takes one virus takes one bear you know you go out in the you go in the ocean takes one big um shark you know to put you back into that okay i'm not the apex thing in this world i'm not i can have a gun and i can protect myself but there are things in this world that can take me out in the snap of a finger that and you know and I think we forget about that and something that we never think about is something as small as a microbial or the, the, the bacteria or virus can take you out so fast and, yeah. you know, it puts you in your place. It's like, we're just, we are blessed to be alive because life finds a way and we get to think and we get to love and we get to ha be happy. But we also forget that our home, the earth has been here way before us and it will be here way after us. And if we don't get our shit together, we're not going to have a home anymore, you know? Yeah. 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 I think we get caught up in a lot of the, the small things, but the takeaway of that is that yes, life is precious. And that sometimes it's nice to step back and think about that. And when I think about that, it always just like baffles me that we spend so much time, like not enjoying life. And then even furthermore to get semi-political is like, to like restrict other people's life, right? Like we, we, if we just were like, oh, I'm so happy and blessed to be alive and have my life and make the most out of like what I have. But like, then it's just like crazy to think like, you know what? 
I'm not even going to like make my life the best. I want to like make your life worse or like I'm going to like harm other people or not think about this. I'm like, what? Oh, no. I don't know. Yes, we are very lucky and blessed to be alive. And life is uh, it's a great thing to have. And we should take advantage of it every day. We should. I I don't I studied Marxism for three years. Right. And I don't necessarily agree with everything he said. But one thing I do agree with is that one thing that the modern world and modern economic market does, especially in capitalism, is it makes it so. Um. It, t- it takes away from what humans want to be doing. You know, it, it makes labor the number one um, commodity for humans life when really humans want to be creative. Humans want to live. They want to, they want to love um, and they want to create their own product. So like what he was saying is like, if you created a chair for yourself to sit in the value of that is a lot more than you being a commodity that creates hundreds of chairs for other people to sit in. And that's what the modern economic market does, right? And now as we're getting closer to automation, it will be interesting to see because removing jobs is actually harmful now, removing those manual labor jobs that people, that makes people commodities. However, it might remove some of that capitalistic exploitation in the sense that if robots can do the jobs that creates the excess commodities, then people can spend their time doing things that actually enhance life or enhance society more than, than not. So it will be interesting to see what happens when robots start to do things. You know, I, I think that that is a, a very optimistic yeah. view. Like, I, I, I love it. It's like, yeah, in the idealized world, of course, like we're like, I don't know, Wally style. We're like, you know, robots do everything for us. Um, but I think as we start seeing it more and more in practicality, right? People are just here to, not people, that's very general, but the people who own and are in power are here to continue to stay in power and to continue to have more body. And so they, they don't care about creating jobs or like having a good life, uh, a sustainable life for those people, right? I mean, even look now we have inflation is ridiculously high, but ridiculous. what are the the race? What are the raises that people are getting, right? And like we argue against like having a ten dollar minimum wage, even though the cost of living is so, so incrementally hot higher than it used to be. So like, I think people get caught into two mindsets. One is if I had to do it or if I can do it, anybody else can versus being more charitable and, and I, I don't want to use the word humanistic, but, you know, like looking out for, for your neighbor, right? Like just because I got haze, people are like, well, then I should haze the people coming up underneath me. Like, that's totally fine versus being like, you know what? I really didn't like that. How can I make it better for other people? So we, we get caught in the first of that mindset. Uh, and the other is that what we are talking about is like afraid to lose what we have. And so we're not, we're always focused on ourselves and not on those others around us. So it's nothing like, it's not even that mindset of like, oh, well, if I can make it, you can make it. It's just, I'm not even thinking about you. So like, let me do whatever I have to do to keep climbing and not even look left or right to see if like, while I'm climbing, I'm pushing rocks down on the other people around me. Definitely. It's it. Yeah. It, you usually are pushing rocks down on other people. That's what competition is. Right. That's, I mean, it's, I mean, I, ideally you'd be competing at an equal level and whoever the best, best person is gets it. But you know, right now it's weird. It's uh, I think it's weird. I don't think it's weird, but I think it's, 
I, I don't know how I feel about it, that you're not allowed to make race or gender a factor, but you're allowed to factor it in. You know, it can't be the number one factor why you take a candidate over another, but they you're allowed to use it. And like, I'm totally fine with however people want to live their life. And I totally understand that people were marginalized throughout society. And so people deserve a chance. I just hate that. Like a lot of the times people like me get to be demonized because of like how I live my life. But it's like, I didn't get to choose myself just as much as everyone else didn't get to choose who they are. I was born in this body as a straight white guy, just as much as anybody else. And if I can do use that to make people's lives better, I would love to do that. But in order for that to happen, I have to get a chance to, you know, get there. And so in, in modern, you know, modern times, I've, my friend, he actually didn't get into a school and he knew somebody who got in like at the last spot. And it was because of that factor. And, and, mm-hmm. and while that that's all in good, like people deserve, if they are a better candidate, like they deserve to get in. I just think you shouldn't demonize people just as much as you, if you want to uplift people, you don't have to step on other people. You know what I mean? I just feel that way. Yeah. Yeah. I think that that, so I think what I'm hearing is like, you're talking about um, uh, like affirmative action kind of things. Yeah, yeah, it's just that doesn't exist anymore. It's just kind of a new version of like. Sure. I mean, yeah. you can just put a new name on the yeah. same product, right? But um, no, it's, it's, it gets tricky. I mean, I think this is, to be honest, I think the biggest problem that we have today in just our general communication and why we're so polarized is that the new, somebody said this, like the new N-word is nuance, right? Mm-hmm. It's like the, nothing, we like, we want everything to be black and white right like whether that's literal black and white or just like yes no right wrong and almost everything runs in these shades of gray there are nuances to to things and complexities to things that you have to think through now i'd say affirmative action falls into that right so like the black and white version is like yes in the perfect ideal world like the best qualified candidate Mm. gets that there's 10 spots, the 10 top people get those spots. But then the nuance becomes like, well, we have to look at like redlining and how redlining affects education, right? So the uh, public schools are funded by property taxes. If you're redlined and put into a district or you were, you're in a district that was redlined, you have lower property taxes, you have lower access to good education. So now you've been systemically held back. And so it's like, okay, the idea is, well, if you were top of your class at this place where you were disadvantaged and that puts you maybe at the bottom of a place that wasn't disadvantaged, maybe if we give you an equal opportunity to go to a place with this, that you have the chance to succeed. In which case, like that little nuance, right? Makes it matters. All the it does. Yeah. 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 I mean, I don't think, well, I think a lot of people might have a problem with that, but I'm thinking if people are like really thinking about what's going on, you know, and they're actually like open-minded, I don't think anyone would have a problem with that. I think there is somewhat of a, a push towards making your systems as diverse as possible. Right. And and, and we're not talking about Kentucky university, of Kentucky, and we're not talking about places like that because the people who are going to go there, the people who are going to go there, right? We're talking about places that are highly, highly um, sought after, right? Like if, if, if you did what we were saying, if the 10 top candidates got into Harvard, they'd all be Asian. Most of them would be Asian, right? Most of them. Yeah. Just I was going to bring that up. That was the yeah, whole thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and so it, it has become nuanced, right? But I think there are these, like, especially in the, every single website, that I see 
on um, for law school says we are dedicated to making a diverse environment, which is like, yeah, we are. What does that mean, though? Does that mean that you will you will only take a certain amount of white people, only take a certain amount of black people, only take a certain amount of um, Latina people? Latinx is the actual the proper term. Because um, if that's the case, it, you're becoming so nuanced, I feel like, or you're becoming so intricate that you're actually taken away from diversity, right? Diversity is supposed to be that you bring in people from all different types of life at a at a, a perfect or not even perfect, but at a good random selection of of top candidates to make your your system as intricate and as complex, I guess, and as different as possible. But when you're making it so like it it makes it so it's not actually diverse. It's it's like blocky and 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 out of sorts. You know what I mean? And so I think you're right. Nuance is a weird term now that no one talks about anymore. And, and most things are in the graces. We have to have a conversation about what diversity actually means and how we can actually, you know, push towards a more equal and diverse society. Yeah. Yeah. I think, yeah. Even nuance in terms of diversity, my mom just applied to, I was helping her. She just applied to a, uh, a master's program. And so like talking about diversity, my mom, single parent growing up, right. Mm-hmm. She is part of the military. She's ex, uh, she's a military veteran. Um, you know, she, she has all of these experiences that maybe she's, she's older. She's my mom. So she's, she's older going back to school. Right. So non-traditional student maybe. Um, so all these things that give different life experiences mm-hmm. that feed into diversity. So I actually, for this PhD program, I just applied to, um, had to write a diversity statement. First of all, I was like, that's so stupid because I am diverse. So like, you're just adding another barrier for me to like come yeah. into it. But in my diversity statement, I talked about that and I talked about there is what you were talking about, which is the, uh, it's not even academic, but this, this very ugly version, stereotypical version of diversity, right? Where it's like, oh, are you Latinx? Are you African-American? Are you Native American, right? Or indigenous? Um, Like, what boxes do you tick? That's what it's all about, right? It's a diversity of boxes versus a diversity of experiences. And so the first half of that essay that I wrote, I just, I tore that apart. I was like, this is stupid. Like, what do you want? Do you want to have a savior complex where it's like, oh, here's a black guy who was raised in a single parent family who like faced racism and stuff like that. And like tick, tick, tick comes from a low mid socioeconomic status. Or do you actually want to be like, here's a bunch of, of experiences that this person brings in, which they overlap that Venn diagram overlaps, right? Bringing in Latinx people, bringing in indigenous people, they have experiences and perspectives, whether it's law school, whether it's medicine that, if you come from another community, right? You come from African-American community, you come from a rich suburban white community, you come from a poor community, right? Like regardless of race, economic status, interacting with people from all those dis- uh, those different perspectives, that's what diversity is. And so that overlap is there, but yes, the word you use chunky, right? So like the stereotyping of it, it's what you see too often with these DEI offices, these offices of diversity, of equity, and inclusion, right? It's that we're like, oh, we want to have 20% of our population is this, right? Like, 
I don't think that there is a percentage. I think it's really, you see it. If I just look and I see the, the different ethnicities that, that are present, like, yeah, that can be a part of diversity. But again, it's really, uh, I have a friend who she is, uh, she's, she's got indigenous or Native American ancestry, but she looks very white, blonde hair, blue eyes. And so like, we were talking about that and it's like, yeah, but also she came from a, a rough childhood and all that and like has this very unique perspective for somebody who's in like this like ivory tower world of science, like that should be incorporated into diversity and that should be what people are striving for. Yeah, and yeah, that's, I think that's a perfect definition of diversity is that everybody brings something good to the table. I just really, I just, I grew up, I mean, I didn't grow up, but I went to school in, like, right outside of Portland at a liberal arts school for four years. So I, I felt like an, like an, um, not an outcast. I felt like an enemy there for a lot of, like, a lot of my courses in the social sciences. I felt like I was being targeted for you know, who I am. And I was like, and I get it, you know, I get it, but like, I have literally nothing to do with other old white people. Like I literally have nothing to do with them. And like so much to the extent, like I'm a fourth generation American. Like my parents, my grandparents, like my great grandparents came here from Germany and they were poor, dirt poor. Like it's not like I like, I don't have any roots here. And so like going there, being at that school and having these experiences actually taught me a lot. It taught me how people, a lot of people who were marginalized society, they, they're getting a voice and so they want to use your voice and that's beautiful, you know, and, and to me, that's beautiful, but also I don't want to be the butt of your joke. Like I remember this one time, it, this is just going to stick with me for the rest of my life. I was just messing around with my friend who is, was, her name was China. And we, I was just messing around with the poor class. Cause like, why not? You know, I like messing around with people make jokes and this girl, man, she's sitting on the other side and she was just, you know, she, she was kind of overweight and she was just like, she was just kind of known to be like really rude, real, like a woke rude person, you know? And she, like I'm messing around and, and she like kind of tried to join the convo and she's like, oh, what's going on? I'm talking to the girl. And she's like, oh, he's just like messing with me. Uh, he's trying to mess up this thing and, you know, just messing around. And she goes, well, he's a white man. They fuck everything up. And like everybody laughed. And I was just like, that's, it's a joke. You know, it's, it's funny. But then I thought about it and I was just like, you can't make jokes like that and like everybody laugh because it's just like it's it and not that it's not fair but it's like it's so like demeaning you know in a sense but it's also like i i wouldn't say something like that to you in a sense like make a joke about you being a woman and or anything like that because you know it's kind of like punching down but it's also like i have nothing to do with your visions of what white people are i'm literally just having a like a like a friendly conversation here. And it just kind of like pissed me off because it's just like, you can't have your cake and eat it too. You know, you can't demonize a person for who they are in the same way that like, like I, I can't demonize a, people for who they are. Right. You know? Yeah. Oh man. That's, that's a tough one. That is a, ah, uh. I mean, you're going to have a different opinion than me, which is fine because well, we're sitting in different like seats of life, but I want to hear what you think about that. Yeah, I mean, no, there's just, there's a lot of things in that anecdote right there, right? So like the first, I guess we'll start from like the most idealized and get down to the most nuanced. It's like in the most idealized world, yes, we don't make fun of people for like how they look and like every, or what their background is, things that they can't control, right? Like that's the idealized world, but also 
a huge portion of comedy is based off of just observational comedy. In yeah. which case, it's like, okay, so like comedians are already facing a hard time and I, I don't have a, a horse in that race for like whether or not we should be demonizing people for making jokes against what was it Dave Chappelle got in trouble for making like I don't know what the joke was even but like at a certain point comedy is not meant to be taken serious there are the funny because it's trues but like comedy is for comedy's sake right yeah that's a good way looking at it if if you're if you're telling a joke and you're getting sensitive about a joke it's like okay so are we going to start censoring all comics Mm. so that's my first take on that and like I can objectively see that essentially it was a race joke, right? It was a reverse race joke where it's like the white person is the butt of the joke. The white man is the reverse, but there are centuries and tons of black jokes and Latin jokes and like a Jew, a Catholic, and somebody walks into a bar joke, right? Yeah. So it's like, I, I get, I find it, it's not that a, a tit for tat, eye for eye is definitely not right, yeah. right? It can't be like, oh yeah, me growing up in an all white community, I can't tell you how many but of the jokes I have been as like the token black guy, right? And it's just like, I don't know. Comedy's it's tricky in an ideal world that doesn't happen. In an ideal world, I can make a joke back, right? Yeah. And it'd be funny, but that's not how we live nowadays. If I made a joke and- about her the way she looked at all, it would be I would I might even be at the dean's office. That's how they take those. And so I I wouldn't say I am a proponent of not censoring comics. Let's just put that out there. I don't think anybody you can make a thousand jokes about how I look as a comedian and like you you can get up on a stage and just flame me and I would be fine with it. I'd laugh. I'm just saying specifically, you can't have your cake and eat it too. At a a place like that, if you want to joke, we have to be able to joke and we have to be, know that it's a joke. And if it's really coming from a place of hatred, then we can talk about it. But if it's not, you know, what is the line, right? If I'm not allowed to say any jokes at all, because I'm a white guy, like that's just unfair, right? There's, there has to be, if you can give it, you can take it a dynamic to that. Mm just based from that story it seems like that was a joke right like everybody's laughing so like even though maybe she's not a certified comedian in that aspect she's the jokester she's a comedian and like i would agree though that like if you like if you came back if you're angry and you came back and said something back that was like intended to be hurtful and like haha that's not a joke anymore right but like if you're like oh here's a flip it casual remark like oh it's because he's a white guy they ruin everything Mm -hmm. and then i don't know you knew something else about her and you're like oh well you know at least i don't pee my pants sharice or something like that (laughs) and everybody else laughs right that's that's different than like oh it's a white man and like oh well you know at least i eat my food or something (laughs) like i trying to be mean right i think that's the difference and that's the nuance to it right is like can you see it as like oh okay this is a situation where it's funny it's funny because it's true because like white men have not not even all white men just historically the united yeah. states is built off of white men doing things and so we can just yeah. say anything that was good yeah. or bad it could be like oh well white men made this happen white men made that happen. Yeah. there's a great book out there called uh, mediocre which talks about like up and like the, it talks about diversity essentially and how like mediocre white men have run the country right and it's like but what is mediocre and all of that yeah so i think That's that a- it no, keep finishing what you're oh, saying. Oh, go for it. Go for it. I was going to say, I would, 
I've talked to a bunch of comedians on my podcast and no, I don't think so. I'm trying to think if they were all white men. No, mm-hmm. I don't think they were. No, they definitely were. They definitely were. They definitely were. Um, but I would hate to be a comedian right now. 100%. I would hate to be a comedian because like it was dude, like you either you're going to go full fledged, you know, you're going to go full out and like maybe get canceled before you've even really started. Like Shane Gillis, for example, he got canceled very fast. You know who that is? Uh-uh. So Shane Gillis was getting was going to be on SNL, and he had a podcast, and he was making like a joke about a Chinese person. You know, just you know, maybe he was a little insensitive, but like he didn't mean it to be hurtful, right? I think he might have used the you know the one of the derogatory terms for a Chinese person. Mm. Um. And so it, it, you can see where you're like, oh, you're being offensive, but also I'm sure he was, he had some drinks and he was like being, he is for a bit. Right. And so I like him saying, Oh, I apologize. Like that's all that needed to happen, you know, but he got his spot removed from SNL. He got kicked off. He got canceled because that's what people do in 2022 is we just, just get rid of him. Problematic. Yeah. Um, and so he wasn't even famous. And then all of a sudden he was like on every headline and he was like, like his like everything like went downhill. Uh, hopefully, I think now he's been on like Joe Rogan a couple of times, so like his career is getting back up on its feet, you know. And he's like starting to do shows again. But like, so you could be one of those comedians that are up and coming, and you just like you go full flesh on what you think and making jokes, and they're funny, but you you get canceled before you even start, and you don't have Joe Rogan's help or someone big like that, or you walk on eggshells and you're never really as funny as you could be, and that's. Yeah. You know, yeah, yeah. I think in there, I see two pro- uh, two problems up front from both sides, right? The first is, is you know, like unless the derogatory term is directly part of the joke versus just like, oh, I'm just throwing it in there. You could probably just tell the joke without the derogatory mm. term, right? Like, um, I I think, but that said, right? So like, if you could tell the joke without that, it's not like a crucial part of the joke, then why do you have to be offensive in that way to mm-hmm. do it? That said, though, I agree. That is a, and I apologize, and then give me a chance to show that I learn and grew, right? This is the whole thing with like, my biggest problem with the penal system is that like, we punish people and we say, oh, you do the, you do the crime, you do the time, you serve it, and then you're supposed to like, that's it. But then once you go to jail, it's impossible to get a job coming out. So you didn't really, you don't come out clean slate and that's cancel culture, right? It's like, you did something. I didn't like it. I'm going to say, let's shut you down. Instead, what I would much rather see is like, did you actually learn from it? Are you a per- are you an actual good person who can be like, Hey, you know what? I'm sorry. I get that this isn't right. I'm not going to do it again. And then you don't do it again. No reason to cancel them. But what we do is we don't give people that opportunity. And then, yeah, like, that's that's it's terrible. You know what's fucked up? Do you know what the Panopticon is? No, it's that. So Jeremy Bentham and a bunch of other philosophers thought of this idea, and it was the idea for the perfect prison. And it was basically this idea where in the middle there was a watchtower, and then the watchtower can see around it is an entire circle, like a, a sphere, and that's where all the prisoners stay. And so the idea is that watchtower can see all around the Panopticon. Right. And they can see everywhere and they can see into everyone's cell. So ideally, you wouldn't even need a prison guard in there at some point because the prisoners would act as though someone was in there being watched 
at all times. And what's fucked up about that is that idea has molded like the schooling system and a bunch of other ways that we've micromanaged all of our people for like long since like the 20th century. Like our prison system has directly correlated to our schooling system and the way in which we teach kids to be obedient to the authorities is the same way we teach prisoners to be obedient to authority. Fucked up. It's the idea that someone's watching at all times. Yeah. 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 I teach now. I, I prefer to teach in the Socratic method where your students are your peers. Right. And it's yeah. based off the conversation, but yeah. Uh, I don't know. I'd have to think about that more deeply. Where were you driving with this? Um, well, I was, where were we at? Where were we at before this? We were talking about cancer. Oh yeah. Well, then you were talking about like the penal system. We punish people and we, uh, get rid of them. We, we don't even do that anymore. We make it so like, you're just, once you get out, like if you get out, you like, you are now a felon and you have to be obedient to the system. You know, like your entire system is designed to just beat it into people that there's somebody at the top watching you at all times and that you must, to be good, you have to follow what the instructions are from the top down, right? And so yeah. we don't even rehabilitate people in the sense that we don't teach them how to be a strong citizen, a, a pillar of the community. We teach them how to be obedient to authority. Yeah, yeah, I... There are a lot of systems in this country that are that are broken, um, which isn't a bad thing, right? Like we, it's it's not a bad thing to be broken. It's a bad thing to stay broken. Um, mm-hmm. And I would say, yeah, the penal system, the education system, the political system—just three big ones that that could mm-hmm. definitely use some some revamping, a fresh coat of paint. You know how I was talking about that intolerability thesis with like Nazi legality and how. You- you you are you're positivist you you separate law and morality and justice up until the point where it comes intolerable right mm-hmm. um when i think about the united states and you think about systematic racism and classism that have been a pillars to what you know our laws are you know and you think about that it's like how can united states legal system be actually valid because it seems as though we've already hit the in- intolerable now, and to an extent, we've gotten better over time, and we would think that we are trying to push to be better. Like that's what our in, is in the American dream. The the reason Martin Luther King stood on Abraham Lincoln's um, monument when he gave his "I Have a Dream" speech is because they were he's building off the um, Declaration of Independence, just like Abraham Lincoln was, and the idea that all men are created equal, and that we're just cashing in that check. We want everybody to be created equal. And so to an extent, that's you can say that, you know, over time, there have been people who have, you know, pushed us to be better. But it seems as though we've hit our intolerable point a long time ago. And that, like, can a system ever really be valid if if it's intolerable for some sort of people? Right. Yeah. 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 It's uh, it is a real conundrum. I don't even know if it's a conundrum. I feel like it is a solvable problem. The problem just has to start with open communication. Um, yeah, and as much as I hate to be, I'll oh, go for it. No, I was just gonna say that as much as I hate to be the person that like just says what everybody else says, right? I really, really, truly feel in my in my heart and soul is that this all starts with media, um, and, and particularly social media. Um, 
which isn't designed to be a good thing, right? It's designed to be a, a, a form of a digital drug where it's, it's pushing you towards one extreme or another. And then all of a sudden we've seen how well that works and how well these companies do. And so now our mainstream media is like, oh, well, we already have these polarized people. Let's continue on to this polarized thing. And all of it is just pushing us further away into these small boxes and these corners, which puts this huge chasm between us and makes this communication, this open dialogue where we can start to not be intolerable and start to have that, that point of common ground that we can grow from is just, it's just not there anymore. So I, I don't know how to solve that problem. I wish we could, we could, but I think that that's where, that's where it starts to get away from, from that intolerability is like, we have to be able to find a place where we all have a middle ground and can be accepting and compassionate about that. Well, it doesn't help that the, you know, the people who are found, who founded this country created a system based on, based on that, like, you know, the idea that nothing can be like solved fast or quickly, you know, these guys who wrote, like, we got to think like these guys were alive in the 18th century when they were writing this stuff and they were, yeah, they were smart people, but they were so afraid. They, they were, they were from the enlightenment. They were afraid of authority. They were afraid of the, um, the tyrant. They were afraid of the dictator. They were afraid of, and, and, and their idea was like the enlightenment, you know, it was like this idea that science, we can get to a perfect science. And not only that, there's nothing more important than individual autonomy and um individual individualism so put that all together and you get something like the united states where we have this constitution that can only change if everybody is in a line however no one's ever in a line and the way we vote is based on like we're not even we're a democratic republic so we vote for representatives to vote for us and so that's why and then and and it's we're like a republic, right? We're not even a democracy anymore. We're 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 yeah. more or less a republic. And yeah, I don't I don't know. The only thing that's de- democratic is our is our states. Our states are democratic. We we vote for our states. It's just the states you vote for president. You don't even really vote for president. You vote for it because like I'm living in Nevada, so Nevada maybe Nevada flips. But if I, let's say I'm in California and I'm a Republican. I'm not, I'm not saying I am, but I'm saying, let's say I'm a Republican in California. My vote does not matter at all whatsoever in California because it's going to go blue. Same thing in New York and same thing if I'm a Democrat in Idaho or Utah, like it's the same thing. Um, however, you want to hear my idea for how we can fix the Supreme Court? Yeah. What do you got? I have an idea. <laughs> well, um, first, no more life terms. Well, see, I'm okay with life terms. However, I, it's appointed by the president, right? And, and that's supposed to take the politics away from it. However, it's only added it because and it's supposed to have like you're still kind of elected, but they're supposed to be appointed for life. So they're not political. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so what I think we should do is that. When there's a new justice that needs to be put, uh, put on the you can honestly take it off. But if there's, when there's a new justice that needs to be put on the Supreme Court, I want the. Either to be the chief justice of all the state Supreme Courts or to be mm-hmm. like elected yeah elected like not even elected the top uh, attorneys or justices judges from each of the states uh or half of the states come together on a council and they rotate on who's on the council and so that council of 25 to 50 people or i would say like 25 people deliberate on who the best candidate 
out of all the justices in the, in the entire United States are to be the next one. And what ideally what that would do is it'd be like a jury. You can even do less people, but it would be like a jury, but it's a jury of the people who understand law the best in the entire yeah. country. And so it'd be a jury. And once they get to an, a unanimous vote on who they should appoint, they would do so based on the ideas of they read the law the most, like they read it consistently. They understand the intricacies of language and how language evolves and what they're going to do is use their position to read the law, how the law is supposed to be written and not trying to legislate from the bench. And I think that instead of it just being appointed by a president until people, you know, they race to the bench. So we have, we, Justin Breyer didn't want to retire, but he retires so that Kentucky Brown Jackson can be on the court so that somehow if a Republican got elected and he died, you know, they couldn't put another one on. And this idea is like, if you had a body that would take that away from there and that the best candidate, regardless of what they believe in, who they look like, would be appointed. I, I like that. I would just add a, an extra step where like, you know, you vote and you have the best five candidates and then there is an election on that, like those candidates. So the we know that because they have been selected, they're highly qualified. Right. So like mm. as an average person, I probably don't know the qualifications for being a good mm. judge. Right. So they're highly qualified. So all of my choices are good choices. And then they get to tell the people who we like are like this is essentially what you do during the uh, the hearings. Right. Where that's like you know, you have the Senate that comes in and is like, well, how do you feel about, you know, Roe v. Wade or mm. Brown versus the board and things like that? And then the American people get to select from these highly qualified people and vote them in. So the, there's still a voice of the people, which is the whole point of a democracy. Yeah. The only problem with giving an election is the fact that you're I'm not saying that's how it works, but you're supposed to, the justices are supposed to be removed from politics entirely. They're mm. supposed to be, and if you give them an election, they're going to cater to the, polit- the people who they like, you know, they tend to like sway towards. And you don't want that. You want, well, you, ideally you don't want that. Ideally you want people who are so far removed from the law or from, from politics that their entire job is just interpreting law. Like, because point. ideally well, not even ideally. The way you interpret law is completely different than how you like how politics are or how um, political ideologies are formed. Because the way you read something, most people read it like they read it like. So there's like people like Scalia, who's now dead, obviously, but Scalia was a hardcore textualist, and so he always would harp on the what's what the founders would have wanted. I want I'm reading it how the founders would have wrote it, and I'm not saying that's a good thing, but he was very consistent with that. And then you had Ruth Bader Ginsburg or even Stephen Breyer, who are evolutionists. It's like no, we're going to read it as the term means now, today's time. Um, and both those positions are very consistent. It's just now we're appointing people who are just like frat boys and fucking I don't know. They're just people who, and even Clarence yeah. Thomas to an extent, he's just Clarence Thomas is the most ironic person I've ever read because he half the, he's very conservative and so is his wife and her, his wife's even a, but he's not even like, he's not as like Scalia was a hardcore founder backer. Like that's what he was. And like people hated him because he wrote the dissent in Obergefell. But like, if you read what he's saying, you wouldn't have expected anything less from him because that's how consistent he was. And for being a justice, consistency is key but Clarence Thomas is just ironic with what he says and 
I don't know. It's just I feel like if you you what you want is you want people who are going to read it and be consistent with how they read it, and they're not going to sway based on the reason they're against abortion or the reason they're against homosexuality or the reason they're for abortion or the reason they're for homosexuality. They're going to read it as though they're reading it in the ways in which the law matters because realistically like the reason there's two different, three different branches is because the people who are writing the laws and the people who are supposed to be the voices of the people aren't doing anything to actually codify anything. And people are mad at the Supreme court. And yeah, you can be mad at the, the five, the five or six people who ruled against Roe v. Wade, but you, who you should be mad at is the entire Congress who have done nothing to, they didn't codify it in the law when they could have, they didn't, they haven't been trying to do anything. You know, they, they haven't, the fact that we're not mad at the fact that Congress has done literally nothing since they've been enacted is b- beyond me. And I'm going on a rant now, but it's just like, it's so inefficient. The system is so inefficient that the fact that we have to even have the biggest decisions of our lives go to the court and just for them to be passed is just fucking bullshit, you know? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. We uh it sounds like you're you're upset about the uh the inefficiency of of our political system in general, right? Like yeah, it's hard for anything to actually get done. Yeah. And a lot of it, a lot of it I think come well, two things in what you said. A lot of that I think comes down to us having a two-party system, right? If you always have a black and white system, a right versus wrong, you're always gonna be butting heads. We need to have at the very minimum a third party who is has enough sway that you know sits somewhere in the middle because you can only be at two points or at least Mm -hmm. a triangle right you have a little bit of of leeway um and the other thing is like yeah i completely agree with what you're saying about the supreme court and consistency and like regardless when we talk about idealism i think it all comes back to the the term that we we started off with is uh regardless of whether it's gay rights or women's rights or minority rights or education rights or whatever is that you look at it objectively, right? It doesn't matter what your opinion is. It's how it, you, uh, your opinion on the topic is. It is you remove yourself and read the law for what it is and are consistent. And because of that, you can be consistent. You can be rigorous. You can be blindfolded. I don't tell you what anything is and you still have 10 times out of 10, the same outcome. Well, yeah, and everyone's like, oh, they ruled on the idea that, you know, parents should be uh, or not even parents, people, teachers should be able to quietly pray to themselves or be religious. But if, as long as they're not enforcing on their kids, it's like, yeah, sure. On the, on the kids they're teaching. It's like, sure. However, there has never been anybody on the Supreme Court who has not been Catholic. Not one person has ever been appointed to the Supreme Court who has not been Christian in some parts. And that seems odd, the fact that we live in a – most people are not Christian or Catholic in this country. I think maybe, maybe 50%, but that's like Christian maybe because you're considering Mormonism and Catholicism and Protestant, maybe. But most people are – we have a lot of atheists and we have a lot of Muslim people. We have a lot of – you know, we, there's a lot of people in this country who are not Catholic. And so the fact that you're putting just – christians on the core like in this is coming from someone who is christian myself i am christian but like that's not what everybody is and so you're you're painting this picture of people of what our country that our top justices are but they're gonna read it as christians no matter what but yeah i mean we could talk about you're driving at the diversity question there right it's like there's there's you want a diversity of perspectives 
which yes. even though you have a diversity of perspectives, ideally, I guess you brought a good point of like, there's different ways to, to interpret the laws, right? Whether it's, it's like founder version versus evolutionary or however you're saying that, but like, ideally you'd have a group of different perspectives who, when they read the law, the law as factual, close to factual as it is, is that like, no matter the perspective, you come to the same conclusion, right? Mm -hmm. That's, that's how you really know that it's good, right? That's the whole point of how science works is that you don't just have one scientist who publishes one paper on one topic. It's like, that's good to go. It's like 15 different labs, 50 different labs over time have looked at this thing. You have all these different eyes that have looked at it and go, this still holds up. Yeah. The fact that they were like freaking out about Katanji Brown Jackson just blows my mind too. Cause it's like, she's like the only thing is like, maybe she has some liberal leaning, but she's just the only thing she has like that you like that they're attacking her is because she's a black woman. Like she's married to a white man. She is a Catholic. Like, they, like everything that they are, I like in their mind is what somebody fucking is perfect is like the only thing is that she's black and she's a woman. It's, it's insane. It's literally insane. And they like, she was a good lawyer. And then you have Tucker Carlson asking about her LSAT score. Like that has anything to do with her last 25 years of being an attorney. It, it's, it's beyond me. And that's another thing. Both of the African-Americans that they have appointed uh, to the Supreme court have, um, are married to a, a white person. I'm not saying that's the bad because love is love. I'm just saying like, does, is that a coincidence? I don't believe so. These people are, they're so codified in their, in their ideas of, of a white America that even when they appoint someone of diversity, that's diverse, they can't do it without having some sort of whiteness to it. It's, 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 it's insane. And you know, what else is just pisses me off is the fact that we let people who are like, three times my age decide things that my life's going to have to deal with, you know, like, like 25, you can be in the house when you're 25, you can be in the Senate and president when you're 35, but no one ever gets elected unless they're like 45, 50. And it's Mm -hmm. like, even that is so far removed from my life that everything that they're ruling, but everything that they're ruling on is going to affect my life growing up. Oh yeah. And yours too. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's like having an argument with your grandparents or your parents, right? And they're like, "Back in my day," and it's like, "Yeah, but this isn't your day." Like, no, it's not. Like, explain to me NFTs and Bitcoin. Explain to me like social media, right? Like these yeah. people who don't understand. Like, I mean, I guess those are more pop culture references, but like, yeah, the people who don't understand the culture that that's coming up. Like, every we're always swinging at a shadow right it's already happened and so they're going to make the laws based off of that and so by the time that we're ready we're not going we're and it's like oh well you screwed us over because you were thinking about like something that's already passed and now we're going to try our best but like really we need to be consulting the people who are actually part of the people yeah yeah well Kenan, thanks again dude this was a lot of fun dude every time i talk to you man it's like just time flies dude <laughs> It's true. It's true. Yeah. We always have good chats. I like it. Yep. I'm in the middle of something. <laughs> Thanks, my brother. He's like, stupid. Um, but we're in it anyways. But uh, yeah, dude, it was fun. I enjoy this. Ghost. No, someone just, I think it's my new credit card. Uh, like, like mine's about to expire. So just put it under my door. But uh, yeah, man, it's, it'll be out tomorrow. So thanks again quick yeah thanks for having me man always great catching up with you i learned a bunch of stuff uh on law this time so thanks yeah